Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And uh, we are joined today by a very special guest um, who's in France, um, but not French. Um, that's all the clues you're going to get out of me. James, who are we talking to today? Well, we've got an old mate of mine, actually. We've got Paul Woodage, um, who I always call Woody, and so does most people, to be fair. Um, uh, Woody is a, is a battlefield tour guide over in, in Normandy, based in Bayeux. Um, he's an absolute mine of information. He also runs his own uh, own channel called uh, World War Two TV, and he's been doing a series of incredible um, live events throughout lockdown. And they've just been fantastic. We just, um, you know, I helped out with a, a thing on on Burma Week, but um, trust me, I was definitely the weakest link on that one. You had some incredible guests. You know, you've been helping me out, and you took part in our Normandy 44 series we did and um, been a kind of a, a source of information, a mine of contacts and all sorts of things. So um, 
Woody, it's great to have you on the, on the, on the podcast. But I'm, you know, today I really want. I know you you have many feathers in your cap these days, but I really really wanted to hone in on on battlefield tourism. Um, I thought that'd be really really interesting because it's it's something we kind of talked about, but not really talked about. If you sort of mean, I mean, we we sort of allude to it, don't we? And I'm always banging on about walking the ground, but it would be great to kind of pick your brains a bit more on that specific subject. <laughs> so well, 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 welcome, Paul. Battlefield tourism. It's I mean, it's an industry. It's coach trips. It's sandwiches. It's warm squash. It's um. It, it, it's uh. You know, I'm just trying to. Th- it's Ponderhock. It's, it's Ponderhock. It's um. I remember once being filming at the Boggyboo Ridge um a very long time ago, and a coachload arrived, and a chap in red corduroy and a sports jacket got out and said, "They say, of course, that uh, in the Second World War the Americans provided stuff, the Russians provided blood, and we provided time. But here is a place where plenty of British blood was spilt." And everyone sort of went hurrah like that. Um, where's your where's your place in the industry compared to all that? Um, how warm is your squash? Is my question. Well, my squash is quite warm. I think. I mean, it's the thing is, I'm a bit of everything, really. Because I mean, James said before we went live, you know, that um, Normandy is the daddy of the D-Day tour or the the the, the um, Remembrance Battlefield Tourism. It's the best and the worst at the same time. That's the thing. We we have here a big part of it is these insanely stupid minibuses from Paris for the day that come to Normandy for just five hours and and they're in a van and the van sort of plays video tracks when they're driving and they get out for photos for five minutes back in the van off they go and the lunch stop takes longer than the actual time spent on the battlefields and that industry has all come up post semi private ryan post band of brothers and and that's unique to Normandy you don't get that in the Ardennes you don't get that in um, Arnhem so that's one end. And at the other end, you have these, the, the, the big bus tours that come for a week and they do the inland campaign and it's the people and the red trouser people and the, the battlefield maps come out and it's the Sandhurst references and that is the other end of it. And I kind of do a bit of everything, really. But my, my time here, it's 20 years I've been here now, I think has coincided with probably the worst part of what's happened to Normandy because I was thinking about this before we started talking it's the sense of exploration has gone because the beaches is all marked out for now it's all information panel and then you walk to another information panel and then it's kind of like look at the bullet hole then everyone turns as one and looks looks at the single bullet hole and when i was coming back in my teens you can be pushing back through nettles and climbing over barbed wire fences to get to stuff and that's kind of gone at least near the beaches yes i mean it's all quite that stretch of normandy is very much uh, um the coast the crust it's very much a museum, isn't it? It's like you're in a sort of, I mean, almost, I mean, a, you could liken it to a theme park in in, in essence that you're, you're for the, you, this way for the invasion theme park. Certainly, I mean, the, you know, Pegasus Bridge, for instance, I went there bef- a very long time ago with the old bridge and, uh, you know, before the new one got put in and before, before basically it became, it became Pegasus Bridge land. And I, you know, you, I wonder how, how actually how useful that is, how much of a sense you get of the place itself. You know, did they land, how close to the museum and the gift shop did they land? You know, did they stop for hot chocolate um, uh, on their way to Horserbridge? You know, it, it, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, when I do, I, I, my market is mostly Americans because it's mostly Americans who are willing to pay the wedge ready to have a private tour and go out and stuff. But when I get the emails from Americans, they book two or three days with me. The question I often get is, so can we just pop by Pegasus Bridge? And I think, 
well, A, it's a long way away from the American sector, so you can't just pop by. But I say, if we're going to pop by Pegasus Bridge, I'm really going to want to take you to Ronville as well and the Breville Ridge because out of context, Pegasus Bridge is just a souvenir shop and a museum. And that's the problem. It's the when you said the nominees at the coast is like a museum, it is, except we visit the museum in the wrong way because a museum these days has a, they call it in French, a sens de visite. You go through and it takes you through 39, 40, 41. My big contention about the visiting of the beaches is people go along the beaches. The Brits get off the ferry at Wiestram and they go along uh, Sword, Juno, Gold, Omaha, Utah, and Americans do the similar thing. But that's not way the, the way the Allied armies went. The Allies stand, started on a beach and went in. So the, it is a museum, but it's like you're doing the first part of lots of museums, but never going through to the final part of the museum, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And that's so yes. frustrating because it, I always keep saying it's like people come here and they see the first part of a trilogy of films, but they never see second and third parts. They just go away seeing that first part again and again. It's like, you know the first part now. You've got to get to the conclusion. You've got to get to the, as J James did in his documentary so well, that middle bit, the attritional bit, and the end bit where you have the, the roundup in the Falais pocket. But people don't do that, and it's, yeah. it's so frustrating. You, you know, we're, we're all grateful for Band of Brothers and, and Saving Private Ryan and any film about Normandy because, of course, that does more than anything else and I suppose also sort of, you know, Medal of Honour and all the rest of it um, and Call of Duty. You know, that, that does more than anything else to kind of sort of bring it to the forefront, doesn't it? But the problem is, is what you're getting is the Hollywood version, which is sort of so far removed from reality that it's not true. And, and you know, w what people are coming to see is, is they're not coming to see what happened on the 6th of June 1944. They're coming to see what they saw in transposed in Saving Private Ryan in the first 20 minutes, aren't they, primarily? Yeah. And, and, and Saving Private Ryan is the elephant in the room that when you're on Omaha Beach as a tour guide you have to mention it at some point, because if you don't, you know they're thinking about it. You know that when you walk out on the beach with a group, whether it's 10 people or 30 people, that they're all running through that 20 minutes. So you have to say, OK, you're all thinking about Simon Pride right now, aren't you? And they kind of go, yes, OK, so let's let's take what we can learn from that and then throw away what's irrelevant. Let's you know, they say, yeah, these, there are houses here because there were houses here. Let's look at why they didn't bother to put houses in in the movie, because it would have... In, their, in the movie maker's opinion, it would lessen the impact of showing that terrifying coast. So they had the big bunker and the, you know, the Germans on the clifftops there. Having hotels in the front foreground would have been weird. So you have to address that and then move on. But I don't blame people like Spielberg because Spielberg didn't know when he made that that every single person who will ever stand on Omaha Beach ever again will have to address the Seven Bright <laughs> Ryan factor. And the same with the... I, I, I used to mention Band of Brothers. I knew most of those guys. Don Malarkey, Bill Garnier, they were mates of mine. It's not their fault that people read so much into what they did and, and that they became obsessed with what that one unit did. In fact, many of them actually dealt with it very badly. They felt very guilty uh, that, they, that their did attention they? was That's all on That's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they didn't like being made centre stage, did they? I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting thing, though, isn't it? Because... Because what's the alternative? People not being interested, this history, this history, um, you know, fizzling out and fading and disappearing and not being and not being, you know, you only have to look at the last the last week, the debate about the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, that the Second World War is still alive as a political issue, if nothing else. And if the history's right, the chance of then drawing sounder political conclusions is more probable, isn't it? Whereas if you're if you're kind of stumbling around in, you know, olive drab Disneyland, 
um, you, you might you might draw draw the wrong conclusions. For, for, yeah, I mean, after all, save, saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan, that opening beach scene, and then into the movie where they're, they're going around slagging off the British uh, and their effort. You know, Marnie's overrated. I mean, yeah, but you're the barman from Cheers, mate. <laughs> um, I prefer Frasier. What's your What's your point? You know that 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 sows into the discourse to the point where. You know, people don't know that the Americans don't know the British were even present on D-Day. Or the, I think, or there's the risk I've of that. I've absolutely had it? that out. I've abs- right. I was I was with a Scottish mate of mine who's also a tour guide. And we were sitting outside the Airborne Museum in San Miguel's, and an American heard me talking in English with my yeah, accent yeah. to a group yeah. of Americans. I just let them go into the museum and have my little break. And he was 40-something, 50-something, and he came up and he said, uh, weird that, isn't it? And I'm like, what's weird? He said, you a Brit talking about D-Day. Why aren't you talking about a battle that your guys were involved in? And I was uh-huh. like, and I, and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. And yeah. I, I, I lay, left that pause. Then I realised it wasn't a joke. And he genuinely somehow had managed to get himself to Normandy, had was in Normandy seeing the battlefield and had still managed to kind of pick up on the idea that the British were involved. and Did you put him right? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, <laughs> without actually slapping him or anything. But, but, but yeah, I did. And he, he was, I don't know how I haven't known this. I mean, I don't know how I hadn't known that. But it's like there was that BBC thing, 10 Days to D-Day, came out about 20 years ago, were based on yeah. the book by some Canadian fella. And it covered Rommel and Otway. And there was Bill, one of the 82nd Airborne guys, Bill Sullivan or something it was. Yeah. But when they showed the programme in the States, they chopped out the British and Canadian bits. They only showed the American bits and the German bits. So how, how can we compete if their own channel yeah. <laughs> was taking out the British bit? It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it, it would have taken longer to edit out the British bits and make a sensible programme than it would have just left it all in and played it anyway. But Yes, yeah, that's, they're making a rod for their own backs there, aren't they? God, how, how fascinating. I mean, it is, it, I mean, you know, to go inland, is, is there's no question how rewarding it is because you do feel nowadays... I mean, it is still amazing to go and see the, the, the Mulberry Harbour. It is still amazing to stand on Omaha Beach... And, and sort of be contemplative for a little bit uh, and all the rest of it. And you do, you know, for all the museums and for all the kind of, you know, pop-up signs and all the rest of it and sanitization. I still think you get a sense of, you know, the scale of it and all that kind of stuff from going onto the beaches. But there's no question that once you start getting inland and you're kind of, you know, you're starting to really, you know, get onto that ridge northeast of... Uh, of San Lo, for example, or into the Bocage at the base of the Cotentin, or you know the areas of Blue Coat or Epsom or Goodwood or any of those, or Hill One One Two. It starts to kind of really starts to unfold, doesn't it? And then then when you get down to Mortain, I mean, you you showed me around Mortain, and it's just fantastic. It's absolutely amazing, and you can really go to town on your then and nows because there aren't lots of signs all over the place. So you know it hasn't really changed and been tarted up. And, and you know that? Do you remember that the uh, the station just outside um, Mortain? I remember your eyes when you saw that, and I held the photo up. You you that you you went back to that ten year old boy reading a book for the first time because you know you're like me. You're, this is your living. There's this, yeah. you you lose sometimes a bit of the sense of wonder, and then when that yes. comes in, when you get to your new place again, you you are that eleven right. year old boy again. Oh my god, that, that's where the half track was. Ah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, exactly. And there was that other. There was that road, wasn't it? Just in that sort of village just to the edge of, of San Lo and there was the, the, the dead Germans on the side and the Americans walking past it and we matched it absolutely to the 
to the yard. I mean, it was just incredible. And 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 all those sort of places. And it's so rewarding. It, it really is. And I suppose it's, you know, people leave, leave busy lives, don't they? And, and, you know, they haven't got much time. And, and so maybe it's only the, for the real aficionado that, that that's going to do that i mean but but what is the what is the way around this how do you persuade people that, that actually there's more to be had from taking a more in-depth tour and actually there's more to it than just sort of taking a photograph well, and well i think the tendency is for us tour guys to blame the public and say well it's the public aren't showing enough imagination they're just doing the stuff near the beaches they need to go more inland which is true but i think and this is where my own industry has to take and shoulder some of the blame because when I moved here and started guiding I was one of about five guides who did D-Day stuff and I didn't do the Mont Saint-Michel chateau kind of thing I left that to other people and it was like what you mean you're not going to do Mont Saint-Michel I said no 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 war stuff there I don't want to do that and now there's 150 of us in Normandy that's based that's not counting the ledger guides and the Stephen Ambo guide to come over that's just based in Normandy I mean that's pre-Covid I think someone will have drifted off but the thing is, though, is when you're on the beaches, you can knock out a very professional act as a tour guide because you have so much information to draw on. So if you're talking about, for example, the Bedford Boys in Omaha Beach, you can tell the backstories of half of those guys in that company. You can point to the exact bunkers where the machine gun fire and mortar fire came from. You can point out exactly where they are. You've got the monuments there to show here's where they got to. Here's When you're going inland, as you know, James and Al, you've got to be more open to the fact that you don't have all the answers you don't have a complete number of personal stories you have maybe one rather than 30 so it's easier for the tour guys to just keep doing that d-day thing because they can act more professionally because their their presentations worked out they know their timings and it's going to take a certain length of time so we need to our profession needs to say okay when you go inland a bit there's a bit more of a of a two-way street working with the clients because if for example you're taking a brit in land it's probably because he's got a family connection with it maybe yeah. his dad was fifth battalion durham light infantry or something so they're going to be coming armed with some information you're going to have some arms be armed with information you're going to be maybe standing in some woods somewhere saying well probably if we look at this map here the eight the guns were maybe over there on that corner somewhere possibly around there but you wouldn't necessarily know exactly and yeah. some guides don't want to admit that they don't know everything perfectly. I hope that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. Mm. I mean, after all, one of the things about D-Day is it's, a 20, it's 24 hours, or it's not even 24 hours, is it? It's that morning, right? So it's very contained as, uh, temporarily as an event and physically. You know, if you, go, if, you, if you go to the Chambois Ford, for instance, to talk about the end of the Falaise Pocket, you've got an awful lot of explaining to do, um, you know, and there is, the, the, <laughs> yeah. to, to get you there... Or, or, you know, if you go up Montormel and look, look, you know, that's a good vantage point because you can you can basically survey the entire end game moment. But obviously you need a clear day for that. You need you need people, you know, you've got you're talking about the, a, a period of a couple of weeks after all that last phase of things. So it's, you know, it's get, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the Battle of Arnhem, people love the Battle of Arnhem is it's in one place and it only takes nine days. It's contained and it's easier to con- tell, a, tell a contained uh, bottle a story if it if it's contained. I mean, it's after all, Pegasus Bridge, I think, is a, is a, is a really good case in point. And I, you know, we've talked about this before. Obviously, Pegasus Bridge, Bridge is the only bit of six airborne divisions landings that goes well, or or or, or according to plan. But you know, the Mayville the Mayville story is quite extraordinary. But but 
but also wreathed in controversy. Were there any guns there? Did they then lose the position? Was it then the commandos who actually clear it? You know, and and on and on and on. As aside from what happens to the rest of um uh, you know, the, the six airborne that night, which is after all, I think. I mean, and again, what we come to is this is is this thing is that the the complex stories I find much more interesting. The nuanced stories, the deeper stories, the stuff with the, where the, the the cloth is cut thicker, I find much, much more interesting for their complexity. But but you know, you've got someone like you say that 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 either they're there to find out what happened to Uncle Albert, or they're there because they've heard about they saw it in the telly and and telling the deep story, telling the story of the deep battle that the Allies fight in Normandy, is I think much much more complex and more more interesting. But also. It's really hard, isn't it? That's the well, problem. Com- complexity takes time. That's the yeah, issue. Exactly. So yeah. W- w- when when we were kind of laughing about this American who didn't understand that the British were involved, you know, we've got to contend with the fact that they have like twelve days vacation a year. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they come over. So they've got to pack Normandy into a day or two. Yeah. So even if they have the interest in doing well, they've only got that day or two, and yeah. so, for example, if I go to Falaise Gap, when I go to Moissy Ford near Sombois. It yeah. will have been on the third day of a tour or maybe a second trip back. So the people who have been with me a year before and yeah. done the beaches, and now they're coming back and they're doing Mortan and Saint-Lo or Cherbourg or Hill 112 or whatever. And now they're going to Falaise Gap. So over the course of just the drive down, you've had an hour and a yeah. half to just chat about, okay, so, because, yeah, you're right. Where do you start the Battle of the Falaise Pocket? Do you do all the operate? Do you Epsom? And then but if you, then if you do Blue Cut, you've got to mention uh, um, Cobra. Then if you mention Cobra, you've got to mention Lutich. Yeah. And then, so how, you know, people's <laughs> yeah, introduction, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a guy who used to work for me whose introduction, we used, used to laugh that his introduction would start with cavemen kind of throwing rocks at each other because that's how he'd start the war <laughs> off. No, no, you kind of got to at least start in the middle of World War Two. You can't start too early. <laughs> Yeah, that's the point when like when James is writing a book where how much backstory do you put in having read his read his Sicily audiobook we were joking about this the other day having read the Sicily audiobook um, our producer Tony said to me how are you getting on with that audiobook and I said and I said to him hallelujah (laughs) we have just landed on Sicily and uh, you know because and I get it I this is and this is the problem isn't it because it because because if you're climactic Normandy battle after all the, the where you do get to fil- the fillets gap I mean it's interesting isn't it because the because you know the the naval effort to make D-Day happen isn't just on D-Day it then goes on that you know they, they fight a battle there for three months to keep the thing going don't they that's isn't that interesting apparently not <laughs> I mean to some people I mean I'm fa- I'm fascinated by this sort of this idea that there's D-Day and then the war ends in 11 months later somehow well, I'll, t- no I'll tell one... you a funny story about and you'll, you'll think I'm making this like there's a mate of mine here tour guide and he'd done a four-day tour three-day tour with a group of I think they were Americans gets them back to the hotel and he does his, he's very slick and very professional. He's done all these trainings of how, train, how to sort of deal with groups. And he works with museums. He trains up, even he trains up the staff, the American Battle Monuments Commission, how to do thematic tours. So he's really good. And he's doing his winding up speeches. So, you know, we've been on a journey together. We've seen where this campaign started. We've seen where the men are buried. We've, we've been through the villages of destruction. Now, having completed this journey, it's now for me to leave you now to go and read your books and carry on the story. And we can... He's very good like that. And so we're, we're finished. And this lady goes, you haven't finished. And he said, well, we've just done the conclusion now. We're not all history buffs, you know. You haven't told us who won. 
And he again, right, he thought it was a joke. So he left that pause. And she went, no, seriously, we don't know. You didn't conclude. And he said, what language was the tour conducted in? And she said, English. We won. That's, that's it. <laughs> but how, how again, you've spent three days here and somehow you haven't concluded that the Allies won the Battle of Normandy. And... You know, I can I can forgive people if I don't remember which day the Battle of Midway started on, or who commanded thirty corps up before Horrocks or something. That's that's just semantics and detail. But not knowing we won the goddamn war, I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? So, yeah, but as you say, really, I mean, really you, the pe- there are people who ter- who I'm sure leave our tours thinking that the war I've ends the next you, day. I've got to tell you, Woody, when 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 my son Ned was about ten or eleven or something, we. I took him, uh, we did a kind of sort of parents and kids from his school on a trip to Normandy. And uh, on day three, Ned put his hand up and said, can I just ask you something? Was Rommel British or German? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And, and he had to wear the naughty hat for the next 24 hours, <laughs> which was a plastic German helmet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this, this is where we, we, we talked about Normandy being the best and worst of everything, because the, the knowledge level of people on tours is vast here. You know, my mate Reg, who does tours in the Ardennes, Baston, most people turn up on his tours with a huge... Because you don't just end up in the Ardennes accidentally. You know, well... I suppose Patton did, but um, you, you, you've gone there. Normandy is so easy to get to. You've got to kind of discount all those people who are doing that bucket list ticking thing where they, they're doing their, they've got their picture of them holding up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now they've done their picture of themselves with a Garzman in London. And now it's the picture of themselves looking very, you know, respectful in front of a, a, a grave of a, a cemetery. And so they're, they're ticking off that part of the process. And those lot, I kind of ignore those lot. They're, they pay our bills, but they're, they're not, you're not going, you might be lucky to ignite some interest in them beyond the tour, but that's not the main thing. But it's those people that you, that you've got to get them to, to trust you that the places they want to see aren't the places they've heard of. That's the thing. They've heard of Point du Hoc. They've heard of this, that, and the other. And Point du Hoc now is just an abomination. When we, when the, the, the spring I was there with James filming was the last time that site was cool. Because now you park and you walk through a rope, fenced off ropeway, eight foot wide through the site. You cannot go into bunkers. You cannot go into the craters. They don't cut the grass anymore because of protection of the, dunes blah 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 so you can't even see where the craters are anymore because the grass is too high so you're shuffled through and you might as well be in some theme park in you know dorchester or something because the whole thing about being at the site has been taken away and yet try and convince americans that they don't need to go because you could say to them look well let's not do point to hot let's go to um crisbeck let's go to uh, montfleury let's go to another gun battery there's the one, I forget what it is, there's one other side kind of near Carborg in the British sector where the Belgian Piron Brigade came through. There's some really cracking cool bunkers up there. Yeah, there's no ranger assault on it, but at least you can actually get into the damn bunkers, see them, see the field of fire, but try and convince someone that they want to go there. Montcanisi is it, that's it. And not Point du Hoc, because well, we've got to go to Point du Hoc because of Colonel Rudder. That's, that's what you're fighting yeah, against. Yeah, yeah. And I get it, I completely get it. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. 
Now, Paul, we've um, we've had twenty five minutes of negatives. <laughs> what are the what? No, no, but no, no. But seriously, what? But what is? But what is? What's good about this? What's what's you know the what's the best that you can have in Normandy? Because because you know I've been I've been several times. And I went when I was a very little boy, and then again and again. And I took my kids about uh, about ten years. Took my daughters about ten years ago, and you know we we ended up buying hot chocolate from Madame Gondre, which as a sort of hot wire to history for t- for two little girls who were being brainwashed into um. Uh, an interest in the Second World War was pure gold. Let me tell you that much. Like I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have planned that better. Um, and you know, we bought the we bought the Go to It book from her gift shop, uh, and it was just you know, and we're, and also with her being sniffy about oh, this also replica as ever see uh, as a museum is no good. So one in England is much better. And then then you find out she lives in Telford or somewhere. Anyway, the point is that the the, the the positives of it. The connection with the history, uh, there's plenty of that though as well, isn't there? Yeah, but you've you've got to kind of go off piste a bit to find yeah. that. I mean, just when I did some research work for James earlier this year, yeah, there's these wonderful guys like Frederick Jan has worked with um, James and, oh, and Louis. these guys he's that live such in a land nice guy. that have been studying whatever it is, their little village. Um, and we went to this museum, me and my mate Colin, down for for James and. Everything the museum is the size of my living room, you know, but everything in it was found within fifty feet of that museum. So there's an SS tune that came out of a barn just over there. Here's the bicycle we got from over there. Here's this MG forty two we dug up just in the field there. And and he will uh, but the best one was the uh, the Sherwood Rangers cat badge. So what happened this tank got knocked out. It was then it was then pushed over off the road off the road and rolled over. So it was spent spent the next twenty years or thirty years or whatever upside down on the verge. And when they cleared it away, and it and it burnt out, didn't it? So when it, when they cleared it away, they found the cat badge. So that was on the beret of one of the guys who was killed in the tank. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so that the best of Normandy is these these little guys, the, the little people that have this passion. I mean, my favourite museum of the five museums, I think it is now in Omaha Beach, is the Big Red One Museum, run by Pierre Louis Gosselin, a mate of mine. He's like five foot one and very short, and you you have to kind of crouch going through because he's put all the cabinets at his height, so you have to kind of bend down to see them. <laughs> but he'll he's got. A stu- well, he'll tell you how he met the guy, how he got the... There's a uh, chaplain, American chaplain, whose gear he's got, and he's got everything from the communion sets, and he'll explain how he got it all. And he, The obstacles he's got there, the hedgehogs, he dragged them off the beach himself when he was 12 years old with with his dad's tractor or something. And so you, you, you're, you're, you feed on that guy's enthusiasm, and therefore that's the best side of it. But... The big bus tours don't necessarily go to those museums because it doesn't fit into what they're doing. They go to the big right. sort of all senses museums, and so it's hard to it's hard sometimes to persuade people this good stuff is there, you know. And, and it, I still still happens to me. You go out and you just engage some farmer somewhere, and he'll get talking. I mean, I haven't gone back there, but there's a farm somewhere in the Falaise Gap where you can see uh, probably a typhoon or something sort of flew up the valley, and there's kind of bullet holes from two sets of cannons on two wings across this big barn that kind of go up, where you can just imagine that this paint aircraft came up. And But the thing is, you wouldn't. this farmer wouldn't let big tour groups come in there three times a week. You'd have to go there occasionally. And, and I say that's what it's missing, the, the, the sense of exploration, where you, you're going there and you are pushing back the, the brambles and finding something. And um, people have got to do the groundwork. That's the thing is, I always say to people, don't just come and 
book a tour with six places listed. What do you want to do? What do you want to get out of this? What's important for you to, to, to do? I mean, Mag, my other half, who's a tour guide, does much more about the French because she is French. And her family was in San Marcouf, which is the village just behind Utah Beach, mm. which in the end suffered the most civilian casualties on D-Day because the naval bombardment, as it did most, where it went, went, went badly. Now, she worked, she's not a kind of guide who can list the armaments of a certain ship and break down how a p- battalion struck. That's not her thing. What she does is she connects with her customers and says, you know, my, her dad was a little boy. 12 years old on D-Day and long story short a German officer had, had come to their house the day before D-Day and said if I were you I'd move in land something's, something's happening something's something's brewing and they moved in land and that they maybe were saved because they weren't in the house they were in when the, the village was hit now to hear a story like that from someone from Normandy as a customer if you're not moved by that then you've got a heart of stone you've got a, 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 mm. a and so we've got to adapt to our orders we've got to not list them statistics that they can find in books you know you say well yeah read, read james book before you come read, read peter caddick adam's book before you come but when you're here try and open your senses to more of that idea of suffering and and the complexity as you say of a complexity and nuance of of being a French person in Normandy, you know, because everyone wants to know, were they collaborators or resistance? And you go, well, most people are somewhere in between the two. But how you define that is all subjective. And, and what is resistance? What yeah. is what is collaboration? Well, and what is com- or complicity or just trying to accommodate, yep. accommodate it into your life? How much freedom of action do you actually have when the Allies turn up? You know, you could collaborate or, or resist as much as you want, but if your village gets stonked, you... There's no two ways around that, is there? Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, I always think that the thing that that, that really strikes me when when you go somewhere is that is the and you know is the terrain and when you when you when you stand somewhere and you can see how long an incline might be all the way down from a high ridge and you can see how much you can see from the top of a hill or where the next hill is or that church spire and all that sort of thing, you you begin to understand. How bloody difficult all this fighting is, you know. You take the and, and you take the bypasses out. That's the thing when you, when you go to Normandy, you think you know, right? There isn't a dual carriageway here. That the dual carriage, I I can't drive from one end of the lodgement to the other that quickly in 1944. It's going to take me a lot longer. You take all that modern geography out, it, I, and I always find that that you know the column bell. Um, uh, Structure, you know, that the, the can see everything. The stripy chimney. That can see everything. That can see everything for miles and miles and miles. When you when you when you know that that's there, that just simple things like that. that well, that I, I think you're you're right about all that because because the bottom line is, you know, in in accounts, whether it be a war diary or whether it be be a memoir or a, an interview or whatever, people are always talking about ridges and high points. You think, okay. But but what does that mean? Okay, sort of you know I might be going to kind of hill one ninety or hill one one two or whatever. But you know until you've been there, you you just don't you cannot comprehend how it fits in to the kind of you know in that three hundred and sixty degrees of of geography that you can see when you're on the top of it. And so that's why it's so important. But Woody, I, my my question for you is you know okay so I've I've got a I've got a you know I'm I'm, I'm an American or I'm an Australian or it doesn't matter who I am I'm, I'm a tourist battlefield tourist and I'm coming over and I've got a week. To, to 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 get to grips with with D-Day and the Normandy campaign, you know what 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 are your what what's your top six places you you take me you want to take me to and and you know I'm I'm going to go I trust you. you you're you're my guide you've lived here you know all the best places I want you know take me to the 
your favourite places which will tell me the most about the battle? Well, six. I mean, if, if you've got a week, of course, you've got, you, you can fit more than a six in. But it's about fitting a structure together where there's a beginning and a middle and an end. That's what I try and do. So it would be um, uh, Hill 192 I really like. Um, Hill 30. near Again, it's all high yes. ground, the ridges, which are the 82nd where Colonel Shanley was. The 82nd is a really cool place to go to. And you understand the approaches to Lafayette. And um, and Chef Dupont, that's kind of cool. Um, the 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 German bunkers. If you want to see Atlantic Wall, there's all those ones kind of north of Utah Beach, Kinnerville, Asville. To get a sense of the of the construction is really is really really important. Yeah, and no one goes there, do they? Because it's not part of the D-Day story. It's it's following a journey. It's taking something and going and looking up, spending time. Um, I mean, I love the 15th Scottish Monument. I love the 49th Division Monument inland. Those kind of places. But again, if you just go and see them in, out of context, it doesn't work. You've got to do that 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 journey. Um, and sometimes it's it's about for me it's blending the big stories with the small stories. So you know you, you know I mean I, I wrote a book about Angervillo Plan, so I about the two medics in the church there. So I take people and I show them the blood stains on the benches mm. where wounded men were laid. Now I've just done that Amazing. after doing Utah Beach. So I've gone from talking about a divisional landing, and with an engineer brigade. So I'm talking about regiments. Not really doing personal well. I mentioned Roosevelt, I guess. And then you go to a little church where it's two people treating a few dozen. So you go from big to small. So that you, it's like it's like I always feel it's like conducting an orchestra. You kind of got your quiet bit, then you have your your loud bit coming in, or putting a set list together like Al does with a band. You know, you've got your what what tune do you come back to after the after the break kind of thing. Um, so, but. So there's lots of places I love. I and mean, Ford, I love. The Falaise Gap, I love. But again, out, you've got to see them all. And it's those little bits where there's just a little bullet hole in the wall. There's Like at Lafayette, I think I showed you, Jim, the bullet hole in the wall yes. of the manor house there. That's just cool. Yeah, I, don't, I love those bullet holes around the church um, at Ronville because um, that, that, it's, you know, you know the story behind that and that, that's really good. Um, the, the hilltopper, you know, the, the crag at the end of uh, above Mortain is just absolutely out of this world. You know, st- standing on on, on Montormel or, or the or the Moisey Ford is 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 really fantastic um but you know the bridge at troana you know beyond troana i thought that was also really good and um there's so many places on there and and going going to Ondefontaine, you know absolutely stupendously good i mean you know again it's a little sort of micro battle and understanding the battlefield and the, the battleground and stuff it's great i mean I, I you know having done all this very in-depth stuff on the show with rangers i literally cannot wait to get back to normandy and check out all the bits that i've that, you know that i can look at afresh through different eyes. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you how painful it was to have to rely on you to do Berjou. I, I mean, and, and you know, you did it absolutely brilliant. And, and I got everything I could possibly have hoped to get out of it without being there myself. I mean, you, you absolutely ticked that box magnificently. And I'm eternally grateful. But I, I just, you know, I just want to be there myself. I, you know, I want to see it. And it was, it was excruciating. But the thing is, you know, when, you, when I was saying about the, the fact that seeing the terrain and the ridges and the, and it is all going to change. It's not going to get better. I mean, again, I was out a few weeks ago somewhere, Hill 112, Odon Valley or something. And I was using one of the battle field Europe books or something that would have been written maybe 15 years ago and even since then uh, but there was one particular house that he said you can stand here in the, with this house in the middle of nowhere and appreciate well it's not now it's now by about about on a new housing estate so because we I, I've, I found I drove past it three times I was looking for this house on its own and it wasn't on its own anymore and that's only going to get worse and yet because I live here I get very defensive about 
the French have absolutely the right to develop their their industry. And I mean, there's a place in in, in Carenton, uh, uh, we used to be one of my favourite places, which is Bloody Gulch, which is where in episode three, a band of brothers and the Stugs come over the hill there. And I would take people to the real location where that happened, which actually has been built over by a, um, a, a veterinarian practice there. But there's the other bit, the side of the road, where F Company were, who didn't actually run away. That's another story that we could do another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to stand there in this hedge and I'd show where this marder got knocked out. I had a photo. I knew the guy who knocked out the marder, Bob Nudie, was a mate of mine with a bazooka. I've got a photo of him holding a bazooka as an old man in the field where he'd held the bazooka in 44 and did Amazing. all that. And then I did the fallback positions. But now there's a bloody great dairy been built on the fullback positions that is enormous. It's a big six-story block. But that dairy has provided work for about 600 people in Carenton that, that is important because that that econ- yeah. economic well, factor of Normandy. So I'm not I'm not anti the fact they built a dairy, but it is frustrating a little bit that you went, oh, God, there's that battle and it's gone again. Well, well, what is the French attitude to the fact that Normandy is... is- you know, a uh, place they live, a place they yes, work, and, a place and they and want to develop. what about this theme park they're building? And, 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 yeah, exactly. What, what, what are there mixed attitudes to, to, you know, people turning up in khaki for most of June? Or are they, do they like the business? It's a bit of both. I mean, places like Santa Mary Glees and Aramange, for example, which are the two touristy yeah. places, all the people who run businesses there I would suggest now have moved in to take over those businesses because they want to have that market of the tourists. So yeah. they're not the locals anymore. Then when you, well, you know, when I was going to San Marigli's in my teens, you'd meet people there whose dad was there. Not so yeah. much now it's Dutch business owners and British. So, so that they, they welcome the tourism. Um, and, but it also the, 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 the counter side of that is they're trying to draw that tourism to Santa Marigli's. It's not in San Marigli's interests now, yeah. to promote Nerville plan or Fauville or Berzevillo plan, the battles that happen around them because there's nothing to spend there. Yeah. And so they will, they want the tourists to turn up park in San Marigli's all day. And it's, it's the same parking fee to pay all day as it is for an hour. So they might just park <laughs> there, do the museum, which gets bigger and bigger and longer and yeah. longer to do every year. Have your lunch in a cafe, walk around San Marigli's with a, they've got a tablet thing you can borrow that tells you here's yeah. where John Steele landed on church. Although he probably didn't actually land Buy on some church, tats. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they spend the whole day there. So they're not really encouraging people to go to Lafayette. So that's the, the downside of that, um, is that it's going to get more and more concentrated around the little, the little hubs of tourism. The little, the little ink spots. Paul, Paul, and the Mor- memorial is another case in point, the one in Versailles, which I know you, and, and, and there's the, um, and the D-Day theme park thing. That, um, yeah, so tell me about that, because I don't know really much. I can't really picture that at all. I mean... It's probably going to be near Carenton, and what I know about it is it's, it's going to be a, a, like a ride every hour, and the audience sits on a... You, you all, there's like a hundred of you sitting on a bench, and the bench moves, and you go from one hall to a second hall to a third hall, and it takes you through the occupation. Like the, like the Jorvik Viking experience in York, where you sit on a bed, bench and you move past different mannequins and and all that sort of thing. Which I last time I was I had an overnight in travel day in York. I was bored shitless. We went to the pub for lunchtime, and then we sat in the in these sort of benches and went through the theme. It's a you know I mean. I, one thing I one thing I mean you you touched on it very briefly there when you're da- dashing through Sam Eriglees with your iPad, John Steele. Now here's the thing: is there not a danger with this that that the narratives get uh, cemented, and it's harder to interrogate them when when basically you have the sort of 
industrialization or commodification of history like this absolutely and nail on head there i mean me and marty morgan spent two and a half hours on my channel talking about john Steele. um and the fact is now it is now carved in stone as something that happened and it's based on nine words cornelius ryan wrote so nine words john Steele wrote in an interview to cornelius ryan that cornelius ryan added all the stuff about the knife dropping blah 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 blah, and became a thing and it is now a thing and that is it that thing is the thing and whether or not he landed there is irrelevant to the fact that it's not what is important about that, that battle there. What's important is holding the approaches, it's holding the bridges, it's holding the crossroads. And that sideshow of an event in the town square is irrelevant, in my opinion. And, and yet, you again, it's the elephant in the room. You have to acknowledge it. If you drive in there, but, oh, my God, there's the guy. Look at the mannequin on the church. Was that? And then they discuss which actor they remember it being in the movie. And it was red buttons. And they go, oh, so did it really happen? And... You know, so, but the, but this, but the going going back to this 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 theme park thing. The, the the thing is that lots of people are being very high and mighty about saying we don't want theme parks there. We want proper history. The thing is though, the inland museums that people should be going to, their visitor numbers are dropping like stones and have been for the last five years. Forget COVID. The trend has been the number of visitors to Normandy like doubling every few years here. It's go, it's up like two and a half million people come to Normandy every year, but they are choosing to not go to these inland museums, like in Saint-Martin-de-Bézas, the Blue Coat Museum, the Tilly-Sur-Sur Museum, Montormel does a bit better. So it's all very well saying people should go to museums. People will choose what they want. You can't make people spend money on things they don't want to do. So I think whether we like this theme park or not, it will work, it will be successful, and lots of people will go there, and we history folk will have to accept that and, and play the cards we've been dealt rather than saying, well, it shouldn't be there. It's going to happen, well, and, and people will go there, and it will make shit loads of money. Well, and if it means that, I don't know, if 10,000 people go through it and... and a thousand decide they need to know more, you know, then it might stimulate something. That's it, it, yeah. Just because it's an apparently lowbrow ap- approach doesn't mean it might yield some highbrow fruit. Is the I mean they're getting the some thing. decent historians lined up behind it in France, yeah. Jean Kelly and people like that who know their stuff. So I think I think they're looking at it seriously, and I fe- I feel they know that that initial mentioning of it being a theme park did it more harm than good and they're trying to kind of recover from that now and say no it's going to be done with a proper script by proper historians and it's going to be nuanced and balanced but then again if it's explained the whole of battle of normandy in half an hour exactly what level of nuance and balance can you go into in half an hour you know so it's it is complicated but we can't we can't We've got to work in the world with them being there, like the Versailles British Memorial that I went to see. I've been to see a couple of times now. Um, it's there um, with all the names of those who died in the Battle of Normandy, uh, British. And do I do I like the idea of there being something for British people to focus on? Absolutely. I'm a bit uncomfortable about how they drew their figures. I'm a bit uncomfortable about the fact they don't mention the people who died in training. They don't mention people dying in the Atlantic and the Channel before D-Day. Or at least explain their parameters. There should be something, I think, saying, here's how we've decided to work these figures out. Because the end end of the norm, it, it goes up to September the 30th, I think, the date. So they've decided that to end it on a calendar date. Because that's the other thing. When when's the end of the Battle of Normandy? Because everyone, the three of us here, would give a different indication of when the Battle of Normandy Normandy ends. <laughs> is it the closing of the Falaise yeah. Gap, it's or Paris. is it Paris? It's Paris. I think it's personally. I go for Paris because it's to Paris, me that's the change of the chapter. 
Yeah, and that's the that's the the phase lines lead to Paris. But many people would say no, it's not Paris because. But there are people buried in American cemetery in Normandy who are killed on the outskirts of Paris. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Paris. You know, yeah, that's it's a fascinating nuanced thing, but <laughs> but but if if you were if you were programming this uh, theme theme park, how long would people be sat in these um, white four down- days out <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with drips giving them giving them um, uh, and, and, the warm and squash, you know. <laughs> but you know, but we, 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 we've got to play. We, you know, we've got to, my, my policy with what I do with my channel and that is we've got to embrace the fact people are learning from comics, they're learning from video games, they're learning from TV shows, and not be snuffy and stiff about it, and just say and work with it and work with these people, and and say that that is how people will find their history. And yeah. and for everybody who reads a book, there's nine other people who don't read books who just go on YouTube to answer everything. That's they just go on the internet and. And they go to museums. They want their they want D Day in thirty minutes. So work with that and yeah. try and try and have them come out of that thirty minutes in a better place than they were before they went in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and knowing uh, that at least the British and Canadians are involved. Well, and after all, it might be someone who wants <laughs> someone who knows their stuff's taking their kids and wants to wants to sort of tune them into it, and it's an easier way than you know in a in a car them saying Dad, shut up, you know, which is. My personal, literally I, my personal experience of driving yeah. around Normandy, you know. Anyway, I should, we should say, uh, Woody, you and I, of course, are doing a Normandy tour next year. It's been sort of twice moved forward, bumped forward because of COVID. But we're finally going in April, I think, aren't we, next year? We're, we're doing our, our epic trans-Normandy I, I pity the people trip. having to listen both of us waffle on for hours all day, you know. Remember, James, when we had that meal at the Chenevier <laughs> that was World War II Museum yeah. and, and, and Sarah introduced and said, oh, Woody's come to join us tonight and James is here. So you've got these two people sitting at the table. If you've got any questions now about Normandy, come up. And, and someone came up and asked us about the restaurants. <laughs> you remember that? And you think it's like yeah. you've now got a chance <laughs> to meet Lennon and McCartney, and rather than ask them about how they composed the song, you're asking about you know their curtains or something. It was really bizarre that. Uh, well, Woody, thank you for that. It's just um, it's brilliant. I, I I always love chatting about all this stuff. I really really enjoy it. It's just fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I enjoy talking about it, and I enjoy I, I I come across a bit negative about Normandy, but I I no, I know, I know, you absolutely love it. I, we all do, we all love you've it. You've got to just be a bit more adventurous, and I, you know, when I, when we get back to guiding again, hopefully, fingers crossed, I want to bring back that sense of wonder again, where I'm working as a on a journey with my customers rather than, as I said earlier, kind of talking at them. So it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, let's go out and try and work some stuff out today. Let's go out and and try and determine where these mortars were that did this thing on this day, and work with them and kind of take people out there and draw on their knowledge. I mean, because that's what you've learned and what I've learned with your podcast is how knowledgeable a lot of the audience is out there. And rather than telling them all the time what you know, let them tell you what they know because there's so much information out there. And I think the guiding industry has become too much. uh, I'm telling you what I know. Here's what I know. And it should be much more of a collaborative, you know, because everybody, all opinions are subjective. Everyone, if I say, I think Dempsey was good in this battle, I want my customers to say, no, I don't, I don't, I disagree. I think he was bad here. That's. It's all just opinions. It's yes, all really. Just... How the hell do you arrive at that conclusion? I think is. I think that's yeah, the... yeah. 
I mean, that's when, we, when you talked about Ted Dan, I know you were you were not in, but when we talked about Ted Danson in Cheers, and because as a, as a Brit, <laughs> uh, when I take Americans at some point in the first day, usually my Americans say, "So, what do you think of Monty then?" And I go, "Okay, what do you think of Monty then?" And then they will start talking about, it, and I say, "So, you know." Give me, give me your reasons why you don't like Montgomery. Um, and actually, when you actually question them, they don't have one, usually. They just think that's the, the default position to be in as Americans, you don't like Monty. And I say, I, don't, I think he was a bit of a twat as a person, but I, I, I don't, you know, and if you don't like him, give me an alternative. Give me another name of someone who could have done that job because it's, it's like football managers. I don't want this manager. Okay, who could do the job better? I don't know. That's... So, but they they fall, fall into this trap of coming with this idea they've they've got, and they don't know how they've got it or why they've got it. But they feel it really they strongly. They do, yeah. And, <laughs> but but it's also yeah. important as well. There are tour guides I know who are very combative with their with their customers, and they try and tell them that they're wrong all the time. And you go, well, no, you've got to work with them and and say, okay, this is why you think this, and this is. I mean, the one that gets me going is this idea of Omaha being so much worse than the other four beaches. Um, yeah, it's a bit worse in the first yeah. wave, absolutely a lot worse. But by the end of the day, can you really say that Omar has deserved that much more attention than Sword or Juno? I don't think so. But it's stuck. It's in you have if you if you're a broadcaster now and you say Omaha Beach, you have to add bloody Omaha Beach or disaster of Omaha Beach or the the tragic Omaha Beach. You have to add one of those words because that's what's expected of you now. Well, it's a bit like the horror of the trenches, isn't it? It's a word, you know, it's a word. And I, I remember Lynn McDonald saying to me that in 1,500 hours of, of, of interviews with First World War veterans of the Western Front, that, that was the one word they never used to describe their experiences, ever. The crack 352nd division I heard last week in a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The elite. So then some will argue, yeah, so no, anyway. they were awful. You go, no, why can't we agree they were somewhere between the bloody two? Why can't we just settle in that area somewhere? The Germans were quite good, but they weren't brilliant, or whatever. It's but We have to give it that headline and that's where normandy is worse than anywhere else i think well it's also that the the, the the idea of a bad day at the office never applies to um you know like uh, villas bocage day one is a bad day at the office for the british good day at the office for the germans isn't it you know and then and then the next day you know it's the it the, the, the it's not great for the exactly germans, so exactly it? it's that, that, that that's that if you because that's what life's like rather than uh history History sometimes is subjected to sort of different parameters to, the, to what life is like. Pete O'Meara played Dyke in Band of Brothers, right? right? Irish actor. And Pete went for the role of Spears. Didn't get it because Matt Settle got it. And Pete got the, uh, the kind of cons- consolation prize of playing Dyke. Never got to meet the rest of the cast. And they did it, the, the producers didn't really want that because he, he has to come in as an alienated character. He's aloof and foxhole Norman, blah, blah, blah. And Pete came to Normandy while these reunions four or five years ago. I spent some time with him and he went down with me and a couple other guys and he got to see Omaha Beach and I think he got to see Pointe du Hawk and Pegasus Bridge and heard from some of us about some of the exploits here. And we were sitting late one evening having drinks. I wasn't because I was driving. And he'd been reflecting on these various actions of Stan Hollis and Colonel Radder and what have you. And he was talking about Dyke because Dyke wasn't anything like as bad as a TV series portrayed he went on to quite a distinguished career and blah 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 blah. Yeah. and he said he said how many of us here would like to be judged by the worst day of our lives because that's what happened to dyke whatever happened to dyke in foie and it wasn't as bad as it was he kind of lost control and he and pete said to me he said what if stan hollis had had a moment on june the 6th or jimmy monteith in omaha beach where they thought shit i can't do this 
and a, and something, a little a little voice or some a corporal looked at them and gave them a little nudge and come on, sir, or something, and they just found that little bit of extra inner strength and they took that extra yard and went on. But Dyke, like Custer, like so many other people, judged on that one thing where it all went wrong because. Like you, I have days where everything I turn touches to shit, and you just think, oh my god, everything goes wrong. <laughs> and you go in and you apologise to people for being cranky yesterday, and I say, I'm sorry, I really screwed that up, and you recover from it. And if, if I judged at the end of what I've been doing, I'd like to be judged on the average performance over the course of many... I mean, you must have had gigs where you've got oh, it. Yeah. Just terrible. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and But, you know, sometimes they're the one where the Guardian's in. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's that's the thing about it. It, it. It's funny how I learn as much about what I'm doing for a profession from people from outside of it who give you this other way of looking at things. Yeah, and that to me is one of those little profound moments that happened to me about how we are judging people. Yeah, and we we, we can talk about James Gavin at Nijmegen or whatever, and it's it we're judging them on on a day when so much going on and so and yeah they make think they get things wrong when I get things wrong. You know, I get back late to the hotel and they've, mi- they've missed dinner, you know. I mean, whoo. <laughs> no yeah. one dies, you know. <laughs> that's absolutely, yes, that, that's absolutely it, isn't it? Um, Paul, it's been so interesting to talk to you. I mean, what, one of the things that the podcast has, has offered us is the ability, you know, the, the fact that we can talk at proper full-on tangents about the subject. And this, I think, is a good example of, this podcast is a good example of that, but also it goes right to the heart of, this subject and how this subject is delivered and what it means to people and then how they can use it and what they can take from it so as much as anyone talking about the internal workings of a v12 or whatever um uh thank you so much thank you so much for uh giving us your time and give your give your youtube channel a massive plug please for our listeners right now so yeah world war Two tv um, I do four or five shows a week, live shows with historians, authors, and we tackle things, subjects by theme week. So next, uh, early May, I start Resistance Week, then it's Italy Week, then it's Strategic Bombing Week, and I have a variety of guests coming on from all around the world talking about stuff for about an hour. Lots of rabbit holes we disappear down, lots of detail, lots of nuance, but um, I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, I highly recommend it. I mean, we both do, Jim, don't we? Yeah, no, that's To, to, to all, of, all of our listeners and to independent company members. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Um, see you again soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheerio. Cheerio.